During today's episode, I'm going to be telling you about a new podcast I think you should be checking out. It's called Uneffing the Republic. They generally talk about uneffing the United States, but today I'm going to be telling you about their new episode in which they turn their gaze to the quasi-independent royal principality to the north of Canada. So hear me out mid-show when I tell you all about that. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall take a look at the mechanisms by which the legacy of white supremacy is harmful to the health and well-being of individuals and society as a whole. Today's clips are from How to Citizen with Baratunde, The Brian Lehrer Show, What Next, Democracy Now!, Hidden Brain, and The New Yorker Radio Hour. So you described this realization that the choices available are determined by policies that other Mm -hmm. people make. Do you remember an early moment where you're like, oh, that policy creates the set of choices people have to select from? I mean, I think during the welfare reform debate, which centered often around single mothers, there was a lot that was discussed in the politics of it about encouraging work. Welfare to work. Right. Welfare is not a lifestyle. There's a sound clips of Bill Clinton out there. We don't want to make this a lifestyle. What we are trying to do today is to overcome the flaws of the welfare system for the people who are trapped on it. From now on, our nation's answer to this great social challenge will no longer be a never-ending cycle of welfare. It will be the dignity, the power... The ethic of work. Yeah, which, you know, when it was clear that if you could find a job, it wasn't actually going to, nothing, none of the options were going to pay enough for somebody to actually not be poor anymore. Welfare kept you basically poor, a minimum wage job kept you poor, the ability to work your way into the middle class had long disappeared. When you say that the, so the pathway to the middle class was closed, when, why did that happen? This is the story that I then learned once I started working at Demos when I was 22. And I was the first hire, other than the director of the program, in the economic opportunity program. And Mm. this was phenomenal. This was my dream job. So it was then that I really learned the progressive economic orthodoxy, which teaches that there was a period of dramatic expansion of the middle class. Hunger drove our people to the bread lines. Anxiously, we waited for some sign of better days. Then came the federal government's work program. One by one, it took... Where, you know, tens of millions of people made it from the working class into the middle class through this massive economic expansion in security, you know, through the New Deal, through social securities, through the subsidization of housing. There were guaranteed benefit pensions. We had these state-funded colleges in every state where the government picked up the tab for college. Hundreds of homes have been freed from the bondage of poverty as their breadwinners find security and hope in their new jobs. It was just sort of this period of time where everything aligned to make the greatest middle class the world had ever seen. It sounds like the American dream. 
It sounds like the American drink. Ding, ding, ding. You got it. That's it. That was it. That was when we had it, you know? And, but the question is, who was the we? So much of what I just described was done from a federal policy level in an explicitly racially exclusive way. Both Social Security and the labor standards excluded the categories that Black folks mostly worked in, uh, agriculture and domestic work. The GI Bill excluded millions of Black veterans because of segregation in higher education. And so each of these ways that the middle class was subsidized, that we had handouts and free stuff for white people in the early 20th century created the American dream and on racially exclusive terms. And then the civil rights movement basically called the question, said, okay, are we going to live up to our ideals? And economically, this is where the story that's at the heart of my book, The Some of Us, comes in. It was, in addition to all those great freebies, there was also uh, this building boom of public amenities like parks and libraries and schools and actually swimming pools. And what happened when many of these swimming pools that were segregated or for whites only were forced to integrate and Black families said, hey, those are our tax dollars creating this public swimming pool. And these are these grand resort style pools, like thousands of swimmers. They were desegregated and Black people showed up and white people hung out with them and they swam together and they played together. And they lived happily ever after. And they made babies. <laughs> and that's why there's no race anymore. Because in the 1950s, the swimming pool created all of these mixed marriages. So, so obviously that's more of an American fantasy would describe it. What actually happened? <laughs> what actually happened was that in town after town, and I, it's very important to me to point out, not just in the Jim Crow South, but in Ohio and Washington State and New Jersey, the towns drained the public pools rather than integrate them. And you mean literally like took the water out? Literally took the water out, backed up trucks of dirt, dumped it in, paved it over, seeded it with grass. In Montgomery, Alabama, where I went on the journey to write The Some of Us, they closed the entire Parks and Recreation Department. They sold off the animals in the zoo. And they kept the Parks and Recreation Department of Montgomery closed for a decade all to avoid sharing it with Black folks. The idea that, what's the saying? You would cut off your nose to spite your face, that you would not only deny Black people access to the free goodies that everybody's tax dollars are paying for, mm -hmm. but that you would, I mean, <laughs> you cancel the public park, you cancel the swimming pool, for all the children and all the families, in your research, did you find any resistance to that extreme resistance? Was somebody out there like, actually, look, maybe we could just timeshare? I mean, why, do we literally have to fill the pool with concrete? That's pretty far. There was. I mean, as always throughout history, there have been the race traders, right? There have been white folks who said no, you know, <laughs> who have stood up and stood in solidarity with Black folks. There are white folks who didn't want to stand in solidarity with Black folks, but were just upset because the pool was gone. But what happened, and this has really been very similar to the loss of public benefits throughout our society, right? Take public colleges. 
what is once a public good becomes a private luxury. And mm-hmm. so then you get this rat race, right? Then it's like, okay, you have that individualized response, right? Let me take another job. Let me mortgage my house. Let me refi, you know, let me figure it out on my own. Yeah. And that's been the sort of slow, you know, ratcheting down of our expectations of what the public could do for us. And we put it all on our own shoulders. And so literally with the pool story, what ended up happening is you saw this advent of backyard pools. In the Washington, D.C. area, you had, after pool integration, over 100 private members-only swim clubs that sprang up out of nowhere. Mm. And so, sure, you could pay a few hundred dollars a year for your kid to swim. Used to be free. Okay, all right, we'll keep it moving. I'll make more money. So you're privatizing public goods and limiting access to those who can afford it, which is public policy connected to your economics. Mm-hmm. Look at you, professor. Okay. <laughs> so so tell me this, though. I'm trying to flash back to this desegregating America, and I'm trying to put myself inside of the mind and body of a white American who's like, the black people are coming. No, we got to shut down these pools. But do they have enough discipline and savvy to explain it in a way that doesn't say, we just don't want to share this with Black people. No, the pools are pretty clear. <laughs> I tried, I mean, I, you saw me. I tried no. to help them out. I was like, they, come on. They must have had some kind of story, some, some kind of BS. Sell it. <laughs> no. I mean, so in St. Louis, possibly the largest pool in America at the time, the first day of the integrated swimming there, there was a mob of 200 white folks who came and beat every Black person in sight. I later saw an interview with one of the white guys who ended up in the hospital from the melee. And he later on would say, you know, in his elder years, he would say, you know, we thought we were doing the right thing. Yeah. You know, they were taught. This is the thing. They were taught by our government, by their church, by all of the rules of society that we were so unclean and unworthy that we should not be allowed to swim with them, go to school with them, drink from the same water fountain as them, walk on the sidewalk next to them. I mean, you know, and what do you take from all of that information is that there's something terribly wrong with these people. And so we must guard what is ours from the incursion of them into it. Us and them. Exactly. Yeah. So you've got this book. Mm. It's called The Sum of Us. Tell me more about this book. (sighs) So The Sum of Us is my attempt after nearly 20 years working in economic policy, trying to get the right data in the hands of policymakers and mostly finding it to be far too difficult to convince the people in power to do the thing that was obviously in the economic interest of most people and in the interest of economic growth in our country. So you say you're proposing these policies that are obviously in the benefit of most people and economic growth. So Mm -hmm. that to me sounds like one of those win-win situations. Mm -hmm. Why was it hard to sell these ideas? Racism. (laughs) Dang it. (laughs) 
Not again. Uh, no, I'm, I'm sort of joking, but I'm yeah. not really joking. That's what I wanted to find out, right? Okay. The first line in my book is, have you ever wondered why we can't seem to have nice things? And by nice things, I really do mean like really universal healthcare, a modern, world-class, or even just reliable infrastructure, a public health system to contain and handle pandemics and save lives. And it was clear that kind of the tools that I had been using, you know, the economic policy research, the legislative drafting and the congressional testimony and all of that was basically falling on deaf ears and inequality was getting wider and wider every year. I just felt like I needed to spend some time to figure out what was really going on underneath the surface. And what I ended up finding was that the biggest impediment to our progress in America, the reason why we can't have those nice things, is that there's this zero-sum worldview, this idea that there's an us and a them. We're not actually all on the same team. And that, in fact, progress for people of color has to come at white folks' expense. And I say that because white people are much more likely to have this zero-sum worldview. Black folks don't believe that progress for us has to come at white folks' expense. And it's that zero-sum worldview that has led many white folks, in fact, the majority since the civil rights movement, to politically sort of cheer the destruction of and resent the provision of public goods that could help them and their families in many instances because it could help the people on the other team. Let me um, play one more clip of the mayor, um, a response to a follow-up question I asked about disparate PTA funding possibly causing more inequity in the COVID era, all of which was still in the context of um, the conversation that was launched by the caller who brought up the podcast. Here's more of what the mayor had to say. You really want to change things in this city? Then everyone better change a lot of the way we live more foundationally. If you just talk about it and feel self-satisfied, God bless you. That's not actually going to change things. What changes things is redistribution of wealth. Uh, tax the wealthy at a much higher level. Uh, make sure that working people who in this city are overwhelmingly people of color get higher wages so they can afford better housing. Help us create the affordable housing in neighborhoods that so many times there's been a NIMBY effort to stop. And the NIMBY effort has sometimes come from people I would have thought were more to the left, not just people more to the right. So if we're going to have an honest discussion in this city, which a lot of times bluntly elite uh, outlets and elite uh, contexts don't want to have this honest conversation, you really want to break down segregation in New York City? Then let's deal with the economic reality. The economic reality is pervading the racial reality as well. And I just feel like this is a lot of cocktail party comfort going on rather than people honestly dealing with this issue. Help me tax the wealthy. Help me redistribute wealth. Help me build affordable housing in uh, white communities if you want desegregation. If you do not want to do all those things, then you're not serious about desegregation. So, Rachel, let's say, let me turn to you on this first. Um, 
you know, the question was about the schools, but his answer is housing segregation and redistribution of wealth as the real root causes that need to be addressed. I realize your expertise is more in education, um, but but what's your reaction to hearing the mayor put the emphasis where he did? I think that he's not wrong. Residential segregation is a hugely powerful influence on a variety of different kinds of inequities in policy. Um, And it's definitely relevant to bring that up. But that doesn't absolve you of addressing the issue that shows up where you can control this. And you see historically, I mean, this was the way that the, the Board of Ed responded to the initial recommendations for integration in the late 50s, which was to say there's nothing we can control about this, when in reality... There were lots of ways in which the Board of Ed had the impact to control. They could change zoning in communities and in neighborhoods. They could change the way districts were created. They could change the ways in which teachers were assigned. Um, And so I think this idea that because we can't control everything, we're not responsible to control the things that we can control. And I think also the sort of, I don't know, disdain for the fact that people have the choices that they can make. The parents that we're talking about are not parents that can necessarily control tax policy. I mean, they vote, and they likely probably voted for him, but they can control where they send their kids. And the idea that we don't have a responsibility or that there isn't merit or value to having honest conversations about those choices and the impacts that they have, to me, um, is sort of a, a red herring in terms of how we focus on this issue. Hannah, you say in this series that there might be two different visions of integration, one comforting to white parents that's sort of gauzy, like a time when you saw your own child's very diverse class play. You use that example, a vision of integration that might make you feel good as a white parent, but that could keep you too innocent. And you use that word innocent. Can you describe those visions and what you mean by innocence in that context? Yeah, I mean, one thing that was really striking to me, and especially in researching the 1960s and learning more about Board of Ed policy that Rachel's talking about, is um, just how similar it felt to now and to the experience I had both as a reporter in schools and also um, as a parent and surrounding the conversation around integration and diversity and a bunch of words that are sort of used in in ways that I think are a little bit imprecise. And that was very true in the 60s, too, that the Board of Ed, following Brown versus Board of Education, the Board of Ed in New York City kind of said, yeah, we're on board and we we support uh, integration and we're already integrated and look at our diverse classes. And integration is about this sort of racial harmony and coming together and being unified and at the very same moment was running sort of two parallel school systems, unequal school systems. And at the same moment was um, ha- there was a movement in New York City from black families and Puerto Rican families saying we want our schools to be integrated. And this is not actually about racial togetherness. It's not about being on a stage um, and performing a song together as moving as that actually is. Um, this is a remedy for injustice. This is a remedy for for structural inequality that has a history and that denies our children the same thing that white children are getting and that what we want for our children is the resources, is the experienced teachers, the quality school buildings that we are seeing white children already have in New York City. And so there is this difference between um, what I think we now would call diversity as sort of um, a, a value to celebrate that we all benefit from and something that was really being pushed as a tool to to remedy inequality and injustice. So, Rachel, did you want to add anything maybe to Hannah's answer um, about notions of integration? And if 
if the word is heard differently in different communities and means things in general uh, differently to people in different communities? Yeah, I mean, I think that the word integration is often, there's a, it's often used in a way that particularly for white people can be similar to assimilation, which is this idea that integration just means that black kids will come to our schools and then become more like us. Um, and I think that the ways in which the black communities are talking about integration has much more to do with resources, which Hannah calls out. But I also think for white parents, particularly those who are interested in participating in integration, I think it's important to challenge some of those ideas and the ways in which um, true integration calls upon um, us all to change. Um, it calls upon white people in particular to question some of the ideas and practices that they have and the ways in which they move typically in public spaces. Let's take a call that I think is kind of on point for this. Desiree in Park Slope. Desiree, you're on WNYC. Thanks so much for calling today. Hi, good morning. Um, thank you for having me. Uh, so I have a pretty unique experience in that I started my education in Mississippi, in Jackson, Mississippi, in the 70s as a child. And then I finished my education in the Bronx. Um, and so I have the um, advantage of having been exposed to sort of post-Jim um, Crow schooling and buffing and being buffed in a faraway school, but also going to a primarily black and brown school as for high school. Um, I don't think that the way that people are talking about integration is useful for students. Um, I think that if the focus was on making sure that black and brown schools have all of the same resources in their neighborhoods that these, that the white schools do. And I'm calling the white schools knowing that like, they're not necessarily all white. Mm -hmm. That would actually be more. I don't think just wanting to have black and brown and Asian and other kinds of kids all in one class is necessarily the right goal, particularly for New York City, because it's not Jim Crow and kids are not isolated. They ride the bus with other kinds of kids. They take the train. They go to the park. It's not like they have no interaction with kids who are not like them ever. Right. So mm -hmm. the idea that to put them all in the same class so they can like get to know each other. I just feel like that's not really a useful idea in 2020 in New York City. I feel like the focus should be on Boys and Girls High School, what do they need? What do they not have that school that, you know, Carol Garden schools have? Make sure that they have that. Hannah, you want to react to this? Talk to Desiree. Rachel, you too. Do you deal with this explicitly in the series? Um, I, yes, we do. I mean, I think that, that everything you're saying comes up uh, throughout the series and, and comes up sort of in the initial early parts of the school of of what integration was actually for, what was the purpose of integration, um, who was it serving, and also who was going to have to sacrifice to make integration possible, who was going to have to bear the burden of traveling on buses and being in schools um, where uh, they maybe weren't welcomed and weren't treated well. I do think that what one thing that struck me about the history of this school in particular was over the after the white parents wrote letters wanting this integrated school and and didn't go to the school, there were several decades in which there were not white families in the school, but the school is part of um, District 15, which has always had um, advantaged white families in it. And it struck me how much what actually happened, kind of the conditions on the ground in the school were still shaped by the interests and priorities of white families who existed in the system with them. So I, I hear what you're saying. And I think that um, 
the conversation does need to be more precise and shift more. I think it also um, is true that that kids are always part of, we're all sharing the same public system. So there, there are ways in which even when there isn't the presence of white families in schools, um, that there's still an influence, it's still a powerful force. Rachel, do you want to expand on that anymore? I think that's, that's one of the really interesting um, themes of the podcast series that a lot of people might not have been exposed to before, even when they're not going to the same schools, um, white parents have a lot of influence over what happens in mostly black and brown kids' schools. Yeah, and I would say just, I think it's a great question that the caller brings up, but I also think that historically, that approach, which is let's just put more resources and try to equalize the resources, is not an approach that has worked. I mean, New York City tried that approach. They had a more effective schools program in the 60s when it seemed like the integration efforts were really not going to be successful. And I think part of it has to do with some of what Hanna just named, which is that white parents, there's a concept of uh, opportunity hoarding, which is that even when white parents aren't in that school because of the ways in which um, when we treat sort of schooling as this competitive private good, there is always going to be a desire on the part of white parents to get more stuff. Um, and so, you know, we'll raise your community garden and show you, a, you know, a, a STEM lab or whatever it is. And so I think part of the value of integration is in part in equalizing some of those resources and access to some of those resources more so, more so than it is about just like a sort of gauzy idea around diversity. It's time again to talk up my podcast friends over at Unf***ing the Republic. It's understandable to think that with a name like Unf***ing the Republic, they'd only be interested in unfucking a single republic. Au contraire. At the end of July, they took a stab at unfucking Canada with the help of some friends from the Great White North. As similar as we are, there is still a gulf separating us each from true understanding. I know this firsthand from our new volunteer transcriptionist, Scott, to whom I had to explain American exceptionalism when he tried to suggest that his hometown of Brantford was the Flint, Michigan of Canada. Only he didn't say it that way. He, he mistakenly suggested that Flint, Michigan was the Brantford of America. But as any American could tell you, there could only be a Canadian version of something American, not the other way around, because we Americans either originate or perfect everything. So it's either ours to start with, or sure, maybe we've taken some inspiration from elsewhere, but we've elevated it to such a higher level as to make a comparison with the original ridiculous. So if something as glaringly self-evident as American exceptionalism needs to be explained to a Canadian, then just imagine what details and intricacies we might be missing in reverse. Well, now you don't have to imagine, because the team behind Unfucking the Republic and their friends at the Canada Land Network are going to fill you in on exactly what it is about our neighbors to the north that you've been missing. So don't be a hoser. Check out the show wherever you get your podcasts by searching for UNFTR or by clicking on the link in our show notes. More and more, as our technology improves and increases, there is a movement to move towards like an online calculator or an algorithm or a risk score. 
that helps doctors make difficult decisions. There are some decisions that are clear cut and some decisions that are more in a gray area. And when we're trying to make decisions like that, it could be when to start a patient on a certain kind of medication or how to counsel a patient towards or away from a procedure or when to seek additional testing or imaging. There are some gray areas. And in in those cases, it can be helpful to have a tool that helps us individualize a patient's risk or a patient's risk factors and guide decision-making. And in some ways, it's helpful to have that because it helps doctors be more objective. You're not just going on your gut. It can be helpful to standardize decision-making in that way, especially when there is a gray area. But when race is a factor, Darshali's got to make a call, plug the data in, or leave it out. It's a decision that's complicated by the fact that oftentimes, there isn't a clear answer on what her patient's race is. There is no clear guideline on how to answer that question, and there's a lot of room for error and judgment to go into that decision. It also, these tools that ask for race, typically they'll, they'll ask for very constrained categories of race. They'll either say Black, white, Asian. The patients I take care of have racial identities that don't fall neatly into those categories. So clinicians often will have to make an assumption based on It can be skin color. It can be what you think they'd identified as. If the patient's in front of you, you can ask them what race they identify as. But again, there's, they're very strict categories. And I think one, one problem that these tools don't comment on at all is what to do if a patient is a multiracial patient or identifies with multiple ethnic backgrounds. Do you pick one? Do you say other? And and how does that affect what output you get from the tool? And these tools are based on previous information, right? Like outcomes of patients who have come before. And it's, I think about race norming as this kind of closed loop of information where it's both documenting a reality, but then there's this question of whether by documenting the reality, you are then creating a reality. Right. Because you've given this score, which now is going to impact how you treat the patient. And so you've used a stereotype to capture someone in a way. And then to use it in predictive modeling. And so you're using a current snapshot of a disparity and using it for a predictive tool to almost continue that disparity into the future. Yeah, it becomes this warped circle of logic. So I'm a little curious what race norming looks like in this NFL situation in particular. Like if I was a player looking for compensation for a brain injury, I'm wondering like what kind of tests would I get and how would they be corrected for race? Basically to decide about the settlements, you need to assess what the damage done is to the cognition and to the brain function. And so these players undergo tests but the way they're interpreted differs based on race. And the way they differ is the tests assume that black players have lower cognitive function at baseline. And so to order to qualify for the settlement, they have to have, they have to show a larger decrement in cognitive function. Hmm. And it's based in this, what the NFL has defended the practice in the past saying that this was based on long established tests and widely accepted scoring methodologies, but there's no scientific evidence to show that black patients have lower cognitive function, of course. And, and, That's at odds with all of our genetic understanding of race to begin with. Race often pops up in these tools the same way a biological characteristic might, like blood pressure or cholesterol. The problem, Darshali says, is that race is a social construct, 
not a biological condition. Just because something correlates with an outcome doesn't mean it's a causation. And just because race correlates with an outcome of interest doesn't make it part of the causal pathway. It's not something about being Black that makes people more or less likely to have an outcome of interest. It's the experience of being Black. And so in, in some cases, it's easier for us to recognize a social factor that that doesn't end up in the model. Like for a lot of these uh, analyses, people will find that insurance type also correlates with the outcome of interest. Insurance type doesn't end up in the final tool because we can recognize that insurance status is a social determinant of health. But when race ends up with a signal, it often ends up in the final model. And that does imply that we're using it in a biological or genetic way. It's interesting because I'm sure the argument that someone coming up with one of these tools might use is, well, the signal is so loud. Like, we have to include it because race was just the loudest signal we had, and so obviously we must include it. And I wonder if you might see that differently, where you're like, yeah, that's like a clanging bell for (laughs) the racism in medicine, not some kind of indication that we need to be sorting people in this way. And I think, right, when you see the signal for race, that should be a call to action, that these racial disparities are really stark and that they need to be addressed at their root cause, not that we should correct for them and just adjust our models around the disparity. Which means, in a way, kind of accepting the disparity. Right. In the worst-case scenario, perpetuating the disparity forward if we're just correcting our tools around them. Detroit police arrested Robert Williams. They held him overnight in a filthy cell. His fingerprints, a DNA sample, mugshot were put on file. This is Williams describing how the officers interrogated him based on the false facial recognition hit. So when we get to the interview room, the first thing they had me do was read my rights to myself and then sign off that I read and understand my rights. A detective turns over a picture of a guy inside Shinola, and he's like, so that's not you? I look. I said, no, that's not me. He turns another paper over. He said, I guess that's not you either. I pick that paper up and hold it next to my face. And I said, this is not me. I'm like, I hope y'all don't think all black people look alike. And then he says, the computer says it's you. But the next day, police told Williams, quote, the computer must have gotten it wrong. And he was finally released nearly 30 hours after his arrest. This comes as Democratic senators Ed Markey and Jeff Merkley introduced a bill Thursday that would ban the use of facial recognition and other biometric surveillance by federal law enforcement agencies. On Wednesday, Boston City Council voted unanimously to ban its use in Boston. Earlier this month, Amazon placed a one-year moratorium on letting police use its facial recognition technology, and IBM's announced it's pulling out of the facial recognition business entirely. Our next guest is a computer scientist and coding expert who documents racial bias in this type of technology. Joy Bolamwini is a researcher at the MIT Media Lab, founder of the Algorithmic Justice League. She's also featured in the documentary 
country coded by us. Welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us again, Joy. It was great to interview you first at the Sundance Film Festival. We'll see when that film festival um, begins again. It's not going to be happening next year. But, Joy, talk about this case. Talk about the Williams case and its significance, how it happened, what's the technology, and what's happening with it now. Yes. So the thing we must keep in mind about Roberts Williams' case is this is not an example of one bad algorithm. Just like instances of police brutality, it is a glimpse of how systemic racism can be embedded into AI systems like those that power facial recognition technologies. It's also a reflection of what study after study after study has been showing, studies I've conducted at MIT with uh, Dr. Timnit Gebru, uh, Deb Raji, studies from the National Institute for Standards and Technology showing that on 189 algorithms, right, you had a situation where Asian and African-American faces were 10 to 100 times more likely to be misidentified than white faces. You have a study, February 2019, uh, looking at skin type, showing that darker skinned individuals were more likely to be misidentified by these technologies. So it is not a shock that we are seeing what happened to Robert Williams. What we have to keep in mind is this is a known case. And we don't know how many others didn't have a situation where the police or the detective says, oh, the computer must have got it wrong. And this is an important thing to keep in mind. Oftentimes, even if there's evidence in front of you, this man does not look like the picture. There is this reliance on the machine. And when you have a situation of confirmation bias, particularly when black people are presumed to already be guilty, this only adds to it. Now, the other thing I want to point out is you can be misidentified even if you're not where a crime happened. So in April 2019, you actually had Miss Majid. She was a Brown University senior who was misidentified as a terrorist suspect in the Sri Lanka Eastern bombings. She wasn't in Sri Lanka. In the movie Coded Bias, the filmmaker shows a 14-year-old boy being stopped by police in the UK because of a misidentification. So again, this is not an example of one bad algorithm gone wrong, but it is showing, again, that system Systemic racism can become systematic when we use automated tools in the context Joy, of police. Let me play a clip from the documentary Coded Bias that shows that story police in London stopping a young black teen based on surveillance. Tell me what's happening. This young black kid in school uniform got stopped as a result of a match. Took him down that street just to one side, like very thoroughly searched him. It was all plainclothes officers as well. It was four plainclothes officers who stopped him. Fingerprinted him. After about like maybe 10, 15 minutes of searching and checking his details and fingerprinting him, they came back and said, it's not him. Excuse me. I work for a human rights campaigning organization. We're campaigning against facial recognition technology. 
We're campaigning against facial. We're called Big Brother Watch here. We're a human rights campaigning organisation. We're campaigning against this technology here today. Um, and then you've just been stopped because of that, but they misidentified you. Um, these are our details here. He was a bit shaken, his friends were there, they couldn't believe what had happened to them. Yeah. Yeah. So be, they, you've, been mis you've been misidentified by their systems and they've stopped you and used that as justification to stop and search you. But this is an, an innocent young 14-year-old child who's been stopped by the police as a result of a facial recognition misidentification. So that is an excerpt from Coded Bias that premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. Joy, tell us more. He was 14 years old. Yes, and him being 14 years old is also important because we are seeing more companies pushing to put facial recognition technologies in schools. And we also continuously have studies that show these systems also struggle on youthful faces as well as elderly faces, as well as on race and on gender and so many other uh, factors. But I want to also point out that while we are showing examples of misidentifications, there's the other side. If these technologies are made more accurate, right? Right? It doesn't then say accurate systems cannot be abused. So when you have more accurate systems, it also increases the potential for surveillance being weaponized against communities of color, black and brown communities, as we've seen in the past. So even if you got this technology to have better performance, it doesn't take away the threat from civil liberties. It doesn't take away the threat from privacy. So the face could very well be the final frontier of privacy, and it can be the key to erasing our civil liberties, right? The ability to go out and protest. You have chilling effects when you know Big Brother is watching. Oftentimes, there is no due process. In this case, because the detective said, oh, the computer must have gotten it wrong, this is why we got to this scenario. But oftentimes, people don't even know these technologies are being used. And it's not just for identifying someone's unique individual. You have a company called HireVue that claims to analyze videos of candidates for a job and take verbal and nonverbal cues trained on current top performers. And so here you could be denied economic opportunity, access to a job because of failures of these technologies. So we absolutely have to keep in mind that there are issues and threats when it doesn't work and there are issues and threats when it does work. And right now, when we're thinking about facial recognition technologies, it's a high stakes pattern recognition game, which equates it to gambling. We're gambling with people's faces, we're gambling with people's lives, and ultimately we're gambling with democracy. So talk about the agencies that you understand are using this. I mean, you've mentioned this uh, in your writing, Drug Enforcement Administration, DEA, Customs and Border Patrol, CBP, ICE. Explain how they are using them. Right. You, and in, in addition to that, you also have a TSA. So right now we have a, a Wild West where vendors can supply government agencies with these technologies. You might have heard of the Clearview AI case where you scrape three billion photos 
from the internet and now you're approaching government agencies, intelligence agencies with these technologies. So they can be used to have investigative leads, right? Or they can be used to interrogate people. So it's not a situation where there is transparency about the scope and breadth of its use, which is another situation where we think about due process, we think about consent, and we think about what are the threats of surveillance. More than 11,000 students from kindergarten through third grade were randomly assigned to one of three class size groups. Researchers tracked their performance over time. The experiment is now considered one of the most important education studies ever conducted. It showed that smaller class sizes led to substantial improvements in early learning, especially for minority students. In the decades since, researchers have also come to realize the random placement of kids in Project STAR could be used to study something else. If you are randomizing by class size, you are also randomizing by teacher race. This is Constance Lindsay. She's an education professor at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. She said this insight led to a new research question. Do children who have a teacher of the same race do better than children who don't? Education researcher Thomas D. was the first to analyze the Project STAR data in this new way. Did students do better if they were matched with a teacher of the same race? In 2004, he published his findings. Constance says they were striking. If you're a black student and you have a black teacher, uh, on average, you're going to have a higher test score than a black student who has a white teacher. The findings weren't just specific to black kids. They also held true for white students. Both black and white kids did better on math and reading achievement tests if they had a teacher of the same race. Thomas D. worried that his results might cause people to call for increased racial segregation in schools. He felt that would be a mistake. He first noted that his results only applied to how kids were doing during the four-year experiment. The results did not predict achievement over longer time periods. Second, he felt the best takeaway would be more study. He urged researchers to continue exploring why race dynamics matter in the classroom. Fourteen years later, Constance Lindsay and her colleagues did just that. Basically, what we did is we said, let's, let's use the fact that we can follow the students um, over many, many years and see what happens to them um, in terms of high school dropout, whether they take a college entrance exam, and then whether they enroll in college. In other words, they tried to answer the open question Thomas D. had raised. Do black children who are randomly assigned to black teachers perform better over the long term? What they found is those early interactions had a lasting effect. Black students in our sample who were matched to a black teacher were less likely to drop out of high school, uh, more likely to sit for a college entrance exam, so think, you know, SAT, ACT, and then more likely to enroll in college. The success of black students increased with every year they were matched with black teachers. Black students who spent more time with black teachers did better than black students who spent less time. These results 
could have huge implications. They suggest that race matching might be one way to get more at-risk black kids to stay in school and go on to higher education. Of course, Tennessee is just one state, and researchers wanted to make sure they weren't looking at a one-state phenomenon. So they turned to North Carolina. This state has a huge public school database. It contains all kinds of information about students, including their demographics, the classes they've taken, and the race of various teachers over the years. Again, the researchers looked at kids in elementary school and then tracked them over time. Now, these kids weren't randomly matched like they were in Tennessee, but still, they had exposure to black and non-black teachers. Constance says the results told the same story. Black kids who'd had black teachers were less likely to drop out of high school. And then when you finish high school in North Carolina, there's a survey you fill out that says, I will attend college, I will not attend college. It's basically like an intent um, to attend college measure. And we find that more black students who are matched to black teachers report wanting to attend college. Students who benefited the most from having a black teacher were those most at risk of dropping out, low-income black boys. The North Carolina data showed that these boys were 39% less likely to drop out of high school if they had a black teacher in elementary school. 39%. What Constance and her colleagues were seeing in education is what Owen Garrick saw in medicine. Race matters. Now, we don't know why these black teachers were making such a difference in the lives of their black students, but the researchers think a variety of forces might be at work. One could be implicit bias. Teachers may hold unconscious prejudices that negatively affect black students. That prevent them from, you know, maybe identifying kids for things like gifted programs or enacting harsher discipline uh, punishments. Constance says black teachers also serve as powerful role models for black students. The presence of, you know, a college-educated adult in your life makes a difference. And then there's what's called cultural competence. Which is that teachers are able to read behavior better if you sort of share, you know, if you have cultural things that you share in common. This seems especially true in the area of discipline. In another research project, Constance and her colleagues have found that one reason black boys sometimes get into trouble at school is because of something researchers call willful defiance. Willful defiance is I get into an argument with the teacher and, you know, I maybe I talk back or something along those lines, and then you have to go to the principal's office. And so what do you see with willful defiance? So we see that the, the drops in willful defiance are huge when you have a black teacher. But just as there's a shortage of black doctors in America... There's also a shortage of black teachers. Nationwide, teachers in elementary and secondary schools are overwhelmingly white, despite growing racial diversity among students. So, for example, in the North Carolina data, both in the long-term study and in the discipline study that I have, over 50% of the black students never have a black teacher. On a very personal level, Constance knows well the lasting impression a black teacher can leave on students. Because my grandmother was a teacher here in D.C. public schools for a very long time. Constance describes her as a warm demander. 
this is someone who is, you know, sort of holds you accountable for the things that you should be doing, but does it in a warm fashion. Her name was Mae Wilson. Mae Wilson. Well, dealing with her, she was stern, kept an order, she kept an orderly classroom. She was the boss, you know. This is Donald Williams. He's in his late 60s and has lived nearly all his life in Washington, D.C. In the early 1970s, Don was a student at a school that has educated generations of African-American students, Dunbar High School. This is where Mae Wilson taught. Man, it's been a long time since I looked in this book. From an old yearbook, Don points to his younger self, a star football player at Dunbar. Here I was blocking, there I was running with the football, there I was running with the football, there I got tackled. Most of Don's memories from high school revolve around football, except for that homeroom teacher, Mae Wilson, whom he's never forgotten. She's like five, 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 four. Yeah, but her, her, her demeanor was bigger than that, you know. She didn't take a lot of, you know, nonsense. You knew it. You knew it. She's like your mother away from home. But she didn't take any stuff. She didn't, she didn't cut any corners. Don says there was something about Mae Wilson that made you pay attention. Maybe it was the tailored skirt suit she wore or her air of authority. She always looked business. She always looked business. She never came in a nightclub dress or something like that. She always looked professional. So that's another message that you saw in her that she was sticking, she stick to the rules of being on time, doing things that you need to do, not being rowdy, controlling yourself in public. Her lessons ultimately stuck and became life lessons for Don. I asked him if it made a difference to him that Mae Wilson was black. He told me the question was a no-brainer. Yes, of course it made a difference. As a black kid, you can relate better when you see someone in the position that you're in. Because if you're not black, you can't understand what I'm saying. You can, yeah, you can say it because it's the right thing. Oh, no, you don't. You couldn't possibly know because you're not black. Don has the same feeling about his football coaches. He says shared identity often led to trust. Like I said, a kid needs to see someone who's been there. It's easy for you to talk it when you got it. It's easy for a rich man to tell you to save your money. He got money. How can a rich man tell a poor man what's going on, what life is about? There's got to be someone that knows the avenues to go to that someone that's black that's been through it. You know, you got you got to, and then you know that's that's his ticket. That's his motivation there to show you what's, how it can be done. Giving students the feeling that they are understood by their teachers, who can say this is a bad idea? But if you zoom out, putting this idea into practice runs into all sorts of problems related to history, politics, and optics. I asked Constance Lindsay about this. Let's say you're the principal of a school Mm -hmm. and you have one black teacher in second grade and you have, let's say, 15 black students spread across five sections of second grade. Mm -hmm. Would you assign all those 15 students to the black teacher? 
I probably would not do that. If I had students that in that particular set of 15 that were particularly disadvantaged, I might. I might also explore ways in which uh, teachers could co-teach so that, you know, all of those 15 students would have the opportunity to interact with that teacher. But I definitely wouldn't advocate sort of segregating them into one class. Why not? That's what your data show works. That is what the data show that works. Uh, But I I I think we agreed that segregation is bad. But I think this is what makes the paper really, really tricky, which mm-hmm. is it's actually suggesting that something that we thought was a good thing mm-hmm. might have an outcome that is not such a good thing. That's right. Um, that's right. So I guess if you if you held a gun to my head and I, you said I had to pick between segregating students and, you know, making sure that uh, students had a black teacher, I would I would pick that they had a black teacher. So you actually would put the students in the same class. Then. If, if you said I had to. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm. I guess what I'm asking you is not so much whether I have to, but yeah. you know, if 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 you looked at the data and said that you are improving the odds of students by ten, fifteen, maybe twenty percent, mm-hmm. and you did not do that thing that could improve their odds by ten, fifteen, twenty percent, I mean, that is immoral. You could say that. You could say that. I mean, if I were a parent of a black boy. And there was one black male teacher in the school, I would go tell the principal to assign my child to him. We've just heard clips today, starting with How to Citizen with Baratunde, speaking with Heather McGee about why our economy is so white and why we don't have any free public pools. The Brian Lehrer Show discussed the role of nice white parents in school segregation. What Next looked at the issue of race norming in the NFL and then expanded the issue to medicine more broadly. Democracy Now! looked at the role of systemic racism in AI technology being used for policing. And Hidden Brain looked at the flip side of racial segregation in schools. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from the New Yorker Radio Hour looking at another case study of school segregation that echoes the fights over integration from decades past. To hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you. Hello, Best of the Left. It's Dave from Olympia, Washington. I just finished up episode 1431, Stealing Native Children and Their Future. Your commentary at the end got me thinking, and so I'm calling in specifically about that. The question of patriotism and loving your country, I you're right, it's not necessarily a policy debate, but it is a issue in big scare quotes in the culture wars. Do you respect the flag? Do you love the country? Do you hate the country? Whatever. And it, it's always struck me that it's such a weird measure of recognizing that there is some flaw, that, that the object of your affection isn't perfect in every way, shape, and form, eliminates the possibility of love. If you realize that the Founding Fathers 
own slaves, boom, clearly no chance of ever loving the country. If, you, if your spouse has ever said anything mean to you or has done, done something legitimately terrible, like how could you possibly continue to have affection for them? If your grandparents and everybody's grandparents, good Lord, have retrograde ideas, how could you possibly love them? It, well, of course you do. Emotions are complex things. And yeah, you take into account these things, but that doesn't end affection. That doesn't end a sense of belongingness to a country and celebration of shared rituals and all the things that go along with patriotism. The right definitely uses, you know, you must hate America as a bludgeon, but it's such a dumb bludgeon. I don't know why they think it has, I mean, it clearly has rhetorical power within their circles, but it's nonsensical. And it's, it troubles me why people either respond to or fall for that. Because, yeah, recognizing that there are flaws within, you know, anything, a country in particular, isn't the equivalent of hating or not loving enough or not supporting enough. It just ah, troublesome and bothering. Your commentary is great. Ooh, I enjoyed it. It was a, it was a, it was a hard listen. There's boy, it was a, <laughs> it was well put together, but just a tough topic. But as always, thank you for bringing us the best of the left. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. Dave gave me lots of thoughts that I want to tell you about. The, the first of which is when he started talking about the idea that if you love something, you can't see anything wrong with it. And if you see something wrong with it, it almost precludes one's ability to love. Obviously not in his opinion, but sort of trying to analyze this perspective that, that other people seem to hold. And what it made me think of first was I did once have a girlfriend, you know, maybe my, my first real girlfriend back in teenage years, who said, not joking, that when you're dating a person, you are supposed to literally think of that person as the most attractive person in the world to you that no one in the entire world should be seen as more physically attractive than the person you're dating and i thought at the time i'm not sure that's how this works but it was, it was a little bit of an insight into the uh i don't know disneyfication or just perverse ways of thinking that that we sometimes get ourselves into but moving on the more dave talked the more i thought about his his analysis that people seem to insist on being completely blind to any downsides any detractions from the object of of one's affection in order to love that thing and and, and the more i thought I, I just don't know if that's exactly it. I don't know that we're hitting this nail right on the head because I've just heard too many examples of people personally acknowledging the detriments of an object of their affection, but being very defensive of acknowledging those downsides, those detriments, 
to anyone else, to anyone outside. And so the more I thought about this and, and I talked with Aaron, our, one of our producers about it, and we were sort of digging through these different layers of psychology and, you know, what makes people do these, you know, various things. And we basically landed on don't air your dirty laundry. That is this sort of umbrella idea about only showing your most positive side. That's what that, that is. Right. And, you know, it got me thinking about Facebook. Because the conversation about Facebook started to be how we are curating our lives and actually creating these depression feedback loops for everyone where we know what our lives are like, but then we see other people's lives on Facebook and they seem to be a lot happier than we are. And that makes us feel bad. Side note, reminder that I never really got into Facebook and I didn't get in the habit of posting a lot on Facebook ever. But I'm aware of this phenomenon and I completely acknowledge that if I had started posting on Facebook that I would have done the exact same thing because everyone does the exact same thing. So I realized that, oh, that's not a Facebook phenomenon. That's a human phenomenon. We've we've been curating our lives for thousands of years before Facebook came around. And so then the question is why? And I think there's a few layers. I mean, first of all, like it's kind of obvious, but it's also interesting to dig in a little bit. And so I I think uh, one could be a genuine protective sense that, you know, if there's something happening in your family that is, you know, something that you wouldn't want other people to know about, it's a very protective instinct. You, you know, you want your family, those people who you love to be seen in the most positive light, even though you know that there are things in your family that are not that great or, you know, not a very lovable aspect of a given individual or something, you know, something along those lines, but you wouldn't want to share that outwardly. And so th- that's what I got thinking about as Dave was talking is like, no, 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 we can definitely love people and acknowledge their detrimental aspects. It's just that we don't want other people to know about it. So I, I think that this is sort of a universal idea, not broken down along political lines or anything like that. There's no reason to think that progressives and conservatives think differently about the, the the concept of airing dirty laundry on the personal level. The, the next angle, though, is uh, maybe a personal coping mechanism that you may think there are individuals in my family or you know, some family dynamic that I come from, and there's something bad about some given individuals or some dynamic, and I came from that dynamic. And so it may be a bit of a personal coping mechanism to try to deal with our own imperfect origin stories and not really wanting to have come from something potentially traumatic. And that may very well stem from, you know, I mean, the same thing that makes people not want to go to the doctor. I don't want to know. I don't want to deal with it. Right. It's just it's just rejection. And again, I mean, as you think about it, that's another sort of parallel with how people talk about the country. They might know that the history is uh, imperfect, to say the least. But if we deal with the history, then that means we have to do some work in the present to deal with that. Like if I went to the doctor and got diagnosed with something, well, then I'd have to go on treatment, right? And and there's a resistance to that. So, you know, all this is on the personal level, but it does sort of get extrapolated to the national level, but not universally. This is where there's this big divide 
progressives, although they might not want to air their family's dirty laundry, is perfectly happy, for the most part, to talk about their nation's dirty laundry and, and actually you know, actively want to take steps in the here and now to try to make things better. Conservatives, on the other hand, seem to be going in the, the other direction, by and large. They're not that excited about talking about the bad aspects of our history, just as we all would about our own families. But what makes a conservative do that sort of on the national level? And what I came to was keeping in mind that I never refer to all conservatives as fascists or proud boys or Nazis or anything like that. We talk about spectrums and you know wide swaths of gray. That, that's what we talk about. But there are trends that begin to emerge as you go farther to one side of the political spectrum or the other. And so without calling all conservatives, you know, proud boys and white supremacists or anything like that, it just came from a discussion about proud boys and white supremacists about sort of authoritarianism and the tendency to identify as your country, not like I'm an American and I live here. That's part of my identity too, but it's not one of my primary identity points. I don't, I don't think of American as, as one of the first ways I would describe myself. I mean, as, as legitimate as it may be for me to do that, there's plenty to learn from me being an American, but there, there are those who put so much of the country into their own identity that they sort of come to identify with the country or particularly a strong leader of a country as being almost as themselves. I am the country. The country is me. The leader is with me. I am with the leader. There's a very, very strong bond that, that gets formed. And of course, this was discussed as part of the legacy of the, the Trump years sort of understanding the absolute dogged nature of his supporters. And so for anyone in that category who, who sees the country as not just a place where they live, but as deeply a part of their own identity, well, then it becomes a lot more understandable why you would apply the same rules about dirty laundry that we all would apply on the personal level and then take that and apply it to the national level as well, because there's not a big dividing line for a lot of people. They see national politics as so deeply personal that it might as well be their own family. So after having wrestled with that for a little while, that that's basically where I came down on it. Uh, I would love to hear anyone's thoughts on either the personal or the national level idea of this discussion. Obviously, you don't have to air your dirty laundry, but but any thoughts about how you feel about talking about the country or talking about your family and those those interesting dynamics because i'm definitely going to be continuing this conversation i ended up talking a little longer than i i thought because i have a sort of a part b of my response that has to do with the importance of taking pride and how that plays in to patriotism so keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com and we will continue the discussion in the next episode. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott for their volunteer work helping to put our transcripts together. 
Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on our website and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. Mm-hmm.